listeners, and welcome to the final episode of this freaky show. It is the month-long celebration of Halloween that we do here uh, throughout the month of October. I am your host, Travis D. And alongside me, as always, the Freak Joe. Guys, I hope you had a wonderful Halloween yesterday as we are airing this, uh, recording this on November 1st. Because, uh, I think we, uh, I think we promised you guys at least four episodes. I think this is number four. It is. Number four. It is number four. And, uh, and, you know, some people celebrate Christmas way too early, so why not celebrate Halloween a little late? Yeah. Yeah. And today, like the Day of the Dead, anyways. It is in Mexico. Yeah, see, so I guess it counts. I count it. Yeah, it'll work for us. Uh, guys, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, Zombie with a Shotgun, uh, the movie that, uh, we mentioned is free and available on YouTube. Um, the, the movie that was based off the web series that we actually had the creator of it on the show not too long ago. Uh, we're gonna give our views and opinions on it and stuff like that, uh, obviously, and we're gonna talk about, uh, The Phantom Tollbooth, uh, chapter uh, 13, I think we're on. Yep. During our Freaknet book club here. And also, the Freak Joe is going to give you your final Freaky Tales of the Year. But before we do any of that, I just got to remind you that this episode of This Freaky Show is brought to you by CarterComics.com. Guys, if you're looking for that special comic book that you would need to add to your collection, the one that is in great condition, a graded, perfect ready-to-go comic for your collection, you just can't seem to find it, Carter Comics is the best place for you to go. They specialize in all types of comic books, from those rare novelty collectible ones all the way down to the uh, silly, goofy, I can't believe they made a comic out of this comic book. It's all available on CarterComics.com. All you got to do is go to CarterComics.com, sign up, get yourself a uh, an account there, and then load up your cart and all their amazing comics. And like I said, they do grade them. That's right. So many 9.4s, 9.6s, 9.8s. I don't know what that means, but they sound pretty fucking good. Um, and they also, like I said, they got a couple of also those, like, those weird, like, I can't believe this is a comic book kind of comic. Dude has been collecting comics his whole life, and now he is willing to share his collection with you guys. And if you look through his comic collection and think, oh, man, they don't have what I'm looking for, well, not to worry. All you gotta do is message Carter at cartercomics.com and let them know, hey, I'm kind of looking for this one. Dude has the ability to find comics for you as well. So make sure you go to cartercomics.com, sign up today. Collect your uh, amazing comics from him. And you know what? In the little shipping comment section, why don't you go ahead and put this freaking show or go ahead and throw Cartoon Joe's name in that little box. Let them know that we sent you. And who knows? Maybe down the line, if you do that enough, they'll send you a nice little gift because they like to help us out as much as we like to help them out. CarterComics.com. Get your comics today. Heck yeah. Uh, this freaky, this episode of This Freaky Show is also brought to you by Audible.com. If you are looking for uh, your next great read and you don't want to read it yourself, head over to audibletrial.com slash freaknet and get yourself a free 30-day trial plus a credit towards your first audiobook purchase. That's right. You can get a free 30-day trial of Audible and a credit towards your first Audible book by heading to audibletrial.com slash freaknet right now. It helps us out, gets you a free book. Maybe you want to read The Phantom Toll Booth. We've really loved it. It's been fantastic. I highly recommend it. Uh, or maybe you want to grab something else. You know, uh, Halloween may be over, but Stephen King can be read year-round. Uh, head over to audibletrial.com slash freaknet. Get your next great read. 
through that, Joe. I'm actually really glad that this was our book. I know we mentioned it several times uh, since we started this book, but I can't tell you how much I love this book. Not just for the fact that, like, you know, the story is absolutely amazing, but the fact that being a guy like me who's never been a big avid reader or anything since high school, it's a nice way to kind of jump back into that kind of hobby. Absolutely. Right. It's, it's an easy read. It's a nice read. It helps you with your imagination. Uh, all the puns in it's phenomenal. It's like the the most puns I've ever found in a book. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. And, you know, uh, uh, everyone, almost everyone has to drive to work these days, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe they're working from home and you just want noise in the background. Yeah. A great way to read multiple books a year is to have someone else read them to you while you're doing other things. Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, like, why, why sit there and turn radio on when you turn an audible book on? Absolutely. Uh, GCR over at the Geekcast Live podcast, he probably reads uh, 30, 40 books a year because he's on the road all day. No and that's kidding. all he listens to is audiobooks. Yeah. Nice. <clears throat> nice. Yeah, I like. I think I like to enjoy my audiobooks uh, either when I'm on the road heading to work or uh, when I'm just kind of doing stuff around the house. I like to throw my headphones on and fall into my own little mind space as I, you know, mow the yard or pick some weeds or, you know, doing some dishes or laundry, you know, just just so I can sit there and try to educate myself as I go through my life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Yep. Yeah. I do love this book and I look forward to doing more effing book clubs uh, here in the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, hopefully getting our listeners involved in to get their views and opinions as we go chapter by chapter through our next amazing book. But let's talk about chapter 13 here. In the Phantom Toll booth. Um, obviously, chapter 13 is the unfortunate conclusion. If you guys remember in the last chapter, Milo snuck into the uh, castle to uh, steal some sounds. Um, so, Joe, why don't you go ahead and take the uh, first half of this chapter, and uh, I'll take the back half. Sure. So, uh, as you know, last week, uh, Milo went in to, to talk to the soundkeeper to try and get a sound so that they could return noise, return sounds to the uh, the Valley of Silence. And, uh, of course, he uh, we, we left off with him with a word on the tip of his tongue that he held in until he got back to town. Of course, he shows up. He, uh, he, he, the villagers are like, you know, they write down on their, their chalkboard, did you get a sound? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's in my mouth, you know, writing it back. And so they bring the cannon over, and he very carefully tips the word into the cannon, and they, they immediately turn and fire it at the castle, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And um, all of the sounds uh, that have ever been made escape from the vaults, and all of the sounds that haven't been made yet uh, also escape, and sound is suddenly returned to the valley. Uh, everyone's happy except the soundkeeper, who is, of course, devastated to have lost her collection. Um, and Milo and, and talk and the humbug try to, to console her as, as best they can. Um, two thirds of which do much better. <laughs> the humbug is, is really bad at, at consoling people. Always says the wrong thing. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and just as, uh, just as he finishes, uh, making her disconsolate, if you will, um, which is the opposite of consoling. Yep. Um, the din shows up from Dr. Discord's uh, sound wagon, and uh, it turns out he has captured all of the lost sounds, all of the all of the sounds that were in her vaults, and uh, returns them to her. And she invites him and Discord over for uh, a, a nice uh, symphony 
And of course, the Din, who who only likes terrible noises, is so freaked out by the idea of being invited over for nice music that he runs away, uh, leaving his bag of sounds with her. Um, so she's relatively happy, and uh, the town is happy, and and Milo. And the humbug and talk get back in the car and go on their merry way. And um, just as they reach the next crest of the, the road or whatever, they see an island in the distance. And the humbug says something to the effect of, um, you know, everything, everything's going to be great from here on out. And then he flies away. And then talk says, yes, yes, I agree. Nothing could get bad now. And suddenly he's flying away. And then Milo thinks to himself, this day could not possibly get any nicer. And the car suddenly empty by the side of the road uh, as Milo flies also over to the island. And from there, I'll hand it to you. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, so they so they see the tropical island off in the distance. Uh, they say the little phrases start floating over and end up on this jaggedy, rockety, gloomy looking uh, island that looks nothing like they uh, saw from across the uh, waterway. And then they uh, meet an interesting man sitting around the island. Uh, they ask uh, they ask who they are. They ask who he is. He's not quite sure who he is. Milo, being the helpful person he is, would like to ask him, you know, who he is. You know, how can I help you? Can you describe yourself? So the man went on to describe himself, saying, like, he's as tall as he can be. He's as short as he can be. Um, he's as strong as can be, he's as weak as can be, uh, he's as graceful as can be, clumsy as can be, so on and so forth, until Milo comes to the conclusion that, uh, he must be, can be. Which I also think is a kind of a weird spelling, C-A-N-B-Y, because when I was reading it, I kept thinking, can buy. And until mm-hmm. I went back and I was like, you know what, maybe it's gotta be pronounced can be, because obviously it's not, you know, strong as can buy. But right. So they found out that uh, this this guy is called Candy, and uh, Milo asked him where he's at, and they said that he's on the uh, island of conclusions. And people who uh, who end up there tend to jump to conclusions, which obviously cause them to end up on the island, uh, questioning why the island doesn't look like it does from afar. It's like, well, that kind of is one of those conclusions people jump to. Obviously being asked how to, you know, leave the island because so many people jump to so many conclusions. There are people always ending up on the island to the point where the island is filling up. And, uh, Milo asks, you know, like, how do we get off the island? How do we leave? And, you know, the Canby says the only way to leave is to swim, you know, swim the, uh, sea and everything. But, you know, it's hard to do that. And he even mentions that, you know, you know, you can swim the sea of knowledge for days and end up dry, which I think is a really cool fucking quote. Like, I absolutely love that. And I know I've heard that before. Um, but uh, they give it a shot. They take the swim. And surprisingly, it's not as uh, bad as they thought it would be. And uh, they made it off the island, realizing that they can't always be jumped to conclusions and assuming things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Nice. Yeah, and it, what a fun chapter. I really enjoyed it, uh, especially after they get to the island conclusions, because he's absolutely right. You can only get there by leaping, mm-hmm. and there's no easy way to come down um, yeah. or get back, you know, without without learning something, without without uh, gaining some knowledge, taking a dip in the, the sea. Yeah, so. and, that's, and that's one of the cool things, because I mean, obviously I think people kind of realize this is more of a 
it's steered more towards children. Yeah. So looking at it like a child's perspective and how everything is written and, uh, you know, like built into the story, it, it really helps with a lot of life lessons for kids. So I do Absolutely. like that aspect of it, like the whole jumping to conclusions thing. Like when you do that, you end up on an island. You know, you end up with other people who have the same mindset as you do. So obviously jumping to conclusions isn't always a good thing because it's not always what it seems to be. Um, and again, like I said, that quote about, you know, you just, you could spend all day swimming through a sea of knowledge and coming up dry, you know, talking about how like you could be around knowledge for so long, but if you don't actually acknowledge what it is, you know, you're, you're still going to end up being dumb for lack of a better term. Right. Um, awesome book. I'm really happy with it. Obviously they're still on their way to Digitopolis. Um, the next chapter, uh, uh, what the hell is it called? Uh, the Dodecahedron leads the way. Dodecahedron, my favorite character. So I'm excited to uh to dive into that. Oh, here's a character. Or she's a character. They're a character. They're a character. Nice. Yeah. I uh I was trying to find the actual uh Phantom Tollbooth movie. So oh. I can uh so I can watch them when we're done with this chapter. Because um, I think I might actually watch it. Nice. Is it on any streaming service? Not that I found yet. I think it is on YouTube. But uh I'll have to I'll have to look a little bit deeper. If not, maybe I get all of Colin to uh find it for me. Dude seems to find a lot of shit. Mm. So I love Voodoo. it. I'm glad Voodoo dot com. Yeah, V U D U. I don't know. It doesn't sound it sounds sketchy as heck. Yeah. That's for yeah, sure. I never heard of that. But uh yeah, and I did love did you notice uh the, the humbug came out dry? Well, uh, Milo and Talk were soaked, which was just so on on point, so uh, well branded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I yeah, suppose I do, I, I, and I agree with you. It's like you said, like you know, it's, he he really didn't learn much from it. Mm-mm. No, it, well, it, it mentioned he mentioned that he wanted to go back sometime. He really liked it there. Yeah, <laughs> which perfect. I mean, really, one percent. So good, but. Great book. Like I said, we're about halfway through it. I'm I'm excited for the choice we made, and uh, I haven't haven't found a bad part about it yet. No, me either. Me either. Uh, you can rent it, by the way, on Amazon Video for three ninety nine. What? Then that's what I'm gonna yep. do. We should make oh. a Twitch so we could fucking do uh, do fucking like uh, viewings. Yeah, I I was just thinking about how could we how could we watch this with our our listeners. Right. I don't know. Is Discord a thing that could you could do that through? Because I hear a lot of things about Discord. I have one, I guess. I never even knew that. What the fuck is a Discord? Uh, it's a messaging app. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like Line app. I don't know. I've never heard of Line app. Oh, that's what we use uh, to communicate with uh, Marvel Contest of Champions. It's just there's a thing where I guess it's like uh, maybe like a Yahoo Messenger or an AIM. Oh yeah, yeah. That's okay. what it looks like. Gotcha. Yeah. No, we we should definitely look at doing like a Twitch or something like that, so we could like view movies and stuff like that. Because we could have done it with Zombie with a Shotgun. You know, get some listeners or viewers to fucking watch, and send us fucking like thumbs up or candy bars or whatever the fuck did they send people? I don't know how I don't know how that shit works. Yeah. Whatever uh, it is. Something like that. We could even do the book club through Twitch. I think it'd be dope. 
Yeah, we should look into that. We should we should definitely look into that. You know, maybe uh maybe look at playing some games or something. I don't fucking know. I, I don't you know. I just whatever fucking people do on Twitch. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Get us a, a hot tub. Mm, there we go. Play games. Right. <laughs> All right. Zombie with a shotgun. We watched the movie. We watched it for free on YouTube because it's available. Um, we thank uh, Hilton for uh, that amazing gift to uh, his viewers and uh, uh, to get an opportunity to watch it for absolutely free on YouTube. Yep. Uh, it certainly was a movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at a beginning, a middle, and end. Uh, and zombies. I did it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. It's, it's one of the, it's, it's something that you really have to fucking like keep an open mind about. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've never it's, really been a huge zombie movie guy. Yeah. Um, so this was definitely kind of a change of pace from kind of like the, uh, the norm of zombies. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I guess, in a way, it's kind of cool. It's I was I was kind of reading through some of the reviews that were on uh, Amazon Prime because this movie is also available on Amazon Prime. Oh, nice! And uh, there's a lot of negativity towards the movie, uh, which I guess is kind of unfortunate. But uh, there was one actually, no, there, there was one uh, rating I actually did want to read. Um, I'm gonna look that up real quick. Uh, Joey, go ahead with, uh, with your feedback while I pull up this one. Uh, yeah, this one uh, review. So the the biggest thing for me was uh, uh, I really liked the concept. I, I think it's a really cool idea that you have somebody who is resistant to the zombie uh, um, virus, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think it, the the idea that uh, they could use his antibodies or something to develop a vaccine of some kind. Um, that's not how vaccines work at all, but you know, it's, it's a fictional movie. Uh, I, I, I think that's a neat concept that I, I think could be developed more. Um, I also, um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of nonlinear storytelling. That was my, my biggest problem. I think with the movie is that we were jumping back and forth from, it starts like, uh, six weeks ago, and then when it returns back to that original time, it's like two months later. And um, also in between, there's lots of like weird flashbacky things that you can't tell if it's a dream or a flashback or what it is. So it was mm-hmm. it was kind of a confusing movie. Um, uh, I'm in. I, I would watch a sequel. I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying don't go watch it. Yeah. Uh, just know that it is an independent film. Um, and they, they, I think did what they could with the budget they had. Yeah. There was a, so, uh, so this one girl, uh, made a post on, gave it a four star review. Um, the thing you must remember when watching this film is that it is an indie film. It's not a high budget film that, uh, you will not get the same experience as if you watched a studio film. If you keep those things in mind when watching, you will be less critical. I will not address the flaws because based on the small budget, they are to be expected. This is an intense movie with a solid script. It led us through a viral outbreak that brings out the best and worst of our society. These are not your mindless brain eaters. These zombies are rational and have a purpose. 
give this movie a chance. It really, uh, it really is pretty good. So nicely said. Yeah. So it's, and that's another thing too. Like it, it's really hard to sit there and um, enjoy movies like this, especially during a pandemic. Yeah. So like it's, I guess people could criticize it for that uh, in a way too. And like I said, I mean like, uh, and I think I've said it to him too. It's like it, it's hard to create uh, some kind of uh, zombie uh, movie show or something like that when the world is saturated with zombie movies, and not even from just like the horror point of it. But I mean, obviously you got like. Like was it like Cold Blood or something like that? That fucking zombie romance rom com, whatever. Um, Shaun of the Dead, Zombieland, like things like that. Like I mean, like you almost get oversaturated with zombie movies. Uh, but like the girl said, I mean, like it is an indie film. It is an open mind kind of concept. You have to go into it. Um, I think they did a pretty decent job at it. I'm kind of like on the same boat with you. Like I want the I want the movie to kind of go start to finish. I don't like the jumping around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, like, to... It, there's there's not really a... Um, there's not a build-up to the end of the movie. You know, yeah, there's points where, like, they're kind of running away from people and everything, but it's almost a repetitiveness that almost will lose you if you're not, like, 100% focused in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one person did a review saying, like, it's the kind of movie you need to watch a couple times just to kind of understand what's going on. Um, and I tend to agree with that, but at the same time, I do that with a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies as well. That's fair. And I was like, you really need to like fully like focus your time into it. Um, and for me, it, it was it was a lot better than most, just because I'm not a big horror guy to begin with, so it didn't like jump scare you a lot and shit. Yeah, um, no, really, no, no jump scares really. Yeah. Um. Yeah. A lot. A lot of uh, awkward sex opportunities in those fucking movies. Yes. Yeah, it felt it felt like something you would see on like the Sci Fi Channel at two in the morning in mm-hmm. nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. So there were, I guess, there were some things that were maybe unanswered in it that kind of happened. Um, but I do believe, I mean, the the ending of the movie did say to be continued, so it looks like we could get, you know, some further explanation of what's going on, and also the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, the co star. Or the uh, supporting uh, supporting actress, if you want the movie, mm-hmm. fucking loved her. I thought she did a great job. Uh, I'm trying to look up her name real quick because I want to give her uh, the credit that she deserves. Oh, what's her name? Come on, cast. Oh, why can't I find it? Why is it so difficult now? It wasn't fucking difficult to find a review, goddammit. Oh, that's because I was looking at the short films. My badger. Ah. That's that's on me. That one was on me. Uh, Catherine Kuhn. K-U-H-N. I think that's Kuhn. Kuhn? Kuhn? Yeah, it sounds like... I'm going to go with Kuhn. Sounds like Kuhn. Catherine Kuhn. Uh, stole the show. 100% did. Uh, nothing against Braden Bade. Uh, but Catherine Kuhn, I think, uh... Really sold it, and kind of a uh, Scarlett Johansson look. Yes, she looked. I she, agree. Kind of, she looked like a, she looked like a Scarlett Johansson. Like if they were to sit there <clears throat> and make an indie version of a uh, Scarlet Witch or not Scarlet Witch, a uh, Black Widow, that'd be her. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. Yeah, very believable actress. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad I got an opportunity to finally see it. Like I said, uh, it's it, it, 
I can't say it's the greatest. I don't want to lie about it. And I mean, no disrespect to Hilton about it whatsoever. It's not the greatest movie in the world. But for an indie film, I can see the work that's put into it, and I can respect that and appreciate it. Yes. It is uh, a minimum of 100% better than any movie I've ever made. <laughs> because I've never made a movie. Well, that's honest, Joe. Yeah. That's 100% honest. So, and I don't, um, I don't mean that as like a dig. I'm not trying to be like, yeah. I, I am trying to be funny, but I'm also trying to say like, I've never done this. It's not, it's not something I feel like I can totally critique and be negative about because it's not something I've ever done. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing too is like, you know, you got to keep in mind that, I mean, there, there are budgets, you know, and if they, if they didn't meet their goal, he said, I think they were on uh, GoFundMe, maybe Indiegogo. I can't remember which one. Um, if they didn't reach their goal, but they still had a passion to create the movie, I guess I could kind of see like where you had to make cuts from. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I made like many, like 20, 30 minute movies back in the day with like, uh, Derek or Jason, Colin, a couple of our buddies and stuff like that. And I mean, they, they weren't that great, you know, just because like it was literally just a single camera just shooting shit. And, um, it wasn't anything like this. And so I can find the respect in the aspect of, you know, he had a cast, he had a crew, they had to get paid, they had to do what they could with what they had and everything. Um, like I said, I mean, like, I, I'm not going to take away from the fact that, you know, that I'm not going to tell anyone not to go watch it. Definitely go watch it. Take the opportunity to watch it. Mm-hmm. Just like the uh, lady in her review said, you got to keep an open mind on it because you're not watching anything made by Disney or DC or Warner Brothers. You know, Absolutely. It's an, it's an indie budget indie film. And you know what? Movies like this could create like a, a cult following just because of how it is. So, Absolutely. And more movies like this need to be made. That's the other thing is, is you know, everything you see now is basically exactly the same yeah. because Disney has a formula for how they make a movie. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I will admit I'm kind of sick of that. I mean, I, I like that I can watch anything by Disney and know that it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. But like, let's start. Let's do something new. Yeah. I like that. Take risks. Do it. Yeah. And also no happy ending. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good with yeah. that. Yeah, I also change. thought it was fun as a just a sidebar. There is an interesting uh shift to uh animation. Yeah, the stick right figure stuff. Yeah. 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 I thought that was interesting. I kind of didn't like that. More of that. Yeah, people didn't like that. I didn't know why. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's the thing too. Like it wasn't like I mean, yes, it was stick figure, but like it was better detailed than just stick figure. Yeah. Um, I also like there was one comment. It was a negative comment, so I didn't want to read that one, but I just laughed because uh, the scene where the cops go into the building to look for the girls, and then there was that that one zombie who came out all quiet, hugged the cop, and everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there was one. There was uh there was one negative comment. Where the guy said the best see the, the the best part of the entire movie was the silent cleavage zombie, <laughs> and I'm just like, well, that's a funny description of her. It's, it's like you know who he's talking about the moment he fucking says it. But mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh god, I mean, like there's there were good parts to the movie, but the fact that he said silent cleavage zombie, sold. Mm-hmm. But it is it, it it it's a good movie to sit back and watch. If you guys have an hour and a half to. You know, spending some free time, pop it up, like I said, pop it up on YouTube. It's 100% free to watch and everything. It's going to cost you nothing but 90 minutes of your life. 
Yeah. You know, like I said, if you're into indie films, you're into low budget films, this is something definitely to check out. Nice. So. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, speaking of stories and creations and, uh, you know, the, the sense of, uh, of, um, viewership, listenership, uh, I think it's time for our final, uh, freaky tale of, uh, 2021. Sounds good. Cool. Let's yeah, get so after it. <laughs> yep. So if you're ready, uh, I'm going to, uh, take a step back, let you take control and, uh, give our listeners the final freaky tale read by the freak Joe. I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> the Shadow in the Corner by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Wild Heath Grange stood a little way back from the road, with a barren stretch of heath behind it, and a few tall fir trees with straggling, wind-tossed heads for its only shelter. It was a lonely house on a lonely road, little better than a lane, leading across the desolate waste of sandy fields to the seashore, and it was a house that bore a bad name among the natives of the village of Holcroft, which was the nearest place where humanity might be found. It was a good old house, nevertheless, substantially built in the days when there was no stint of stone and timber, a good old gray stone house with many gables, deep window seats, and a wide staircase, long, dark passages, hidden doors and queer corners, Closets as large as some modern rooms, and cellars in which a company of soldiers might have lain Purdue. This spacious old mansion was given over to rats and mice, loneliness, echoes, and the occupation of three elderly people, Michael Bascom, whose forebears had been landowners of importance in the neighborhood, and his two servants, Daniel Skegg and his wife, who had served the owner of that grim old house ever since he left the university, where he had lived 15 years of his life, five as student and ten as professor of natural science. At three and thirty, Michael Bascom had seemed a middle-aged man. At fifty-six, he looked and moved and spoke like an old man. During that interval of twenty-three years, he had lived alone in Wild Heath Grange, and the country people told each other that the house had made him what he was. This was a fanciful and superstitious notion on their part, doubtless, Yet it would not have been difficult to have traced a certain affinity between the dull gray building and the man who lived in it. Both seemed alike remote from the common cares and interests of humanity. Both had an air of settled melancholy, engendered by perpetual solitude. Both had the same faded complexion, the same look of slow decay. Yet as lonely as Michael Bascom's life was at Wild Heath Grange, he would not on any account have altered its tenor. He had been glad to exchange the comparative seclusion of college rooms for the unbroken solitude of Wild Heath. He was a fanatic in his love of scientific research, and his quiet days were filled to the brim with labors that seldom failed to interest and satisfy him. There were periods of depression, occasional moments of doubt, when the goals towards which he strove seemed unattainable, and his spirit fainted within him. Happily, such times were rare with him. He had a dogged power of continuity which ought to have carried him to the highest pinnacle of achievement, and which perhaps might ultimately have won for him a grand name and a worldwide renown. But for a catastrophe which burdened the declining years of his harmless life with an unconquerable remorse. One autumn morning, when he had lived just three and twenty years at Wild Heath, and had only lately begun to perceive that his faithful butler and body servant, 
who was a middle-aged man when he first employed him, was actually getting old. Mr. Bascom's breakfast meditations over the latest treatise on the atomic theory were interrupted by an abrupt demand from that very Daniel Skegg. The man was accustomed to wait upon his master in the most absolute silence, and his sudden breaking out into speech was almost as startling as if the bust of Socrates above the bookcase had burst into human language. "'It's no use,' said Daniel. "'My missus must have a girl.' "'A what?' demanded Mr. Bascom, without taking his eyes from the line he had been reading. "'A girl, a girl to trot about and wash up and help the old lady. She's getting weak on her legs, poor soul. We've none of us grown younger in the last twenty years.' Twenty years, echoed Michael Bascom scornfully. What is twenty years in the formation of a strata? What even in the growth of an oak, the cooling of a volcano? Not much, perhaps, but it's apt to tell upon the bones of a human being. The manganese staining to be seen upon some skulls would certainly indicate, began the scientist dreamily. I wish my bones were only as free from rheumatics as they were twenty years ago, pursued Daniel testily. And then, perhaps, I should make light of twenty years. Howsoever the long and the short of it is, my missus must have a girl. She can't go on trotting up and down these everlasting passages, and standing in that stone scullery year after year, just as if she was a young woman. She must have a girl to help. Let her have twenty girls, said Mr. Bascom, going back to his book. What's the use of talking like that, sir? Twenty girls, indeed. We shall have rare work to get one. "'Because the neighborhood is sparsely populated?' interrogated Mr. Bascom, still reading. "'No, sir, because this house is known to be haunted.' Michael Bascom laid down his book and turned a look of grave reproach upon his servant. "'Skeg,' he said in a severe voice, "'I thought you had lived long enough with me to be superior to any folly of that kind.' "'I don't say that I believe in ghosts,' answered Daniel with a semi-apologetic air. "'But the country people do.' There's no mortal among them that will venture across our threshold after nightfall. Merely because Anthony Bascom, who led a wild life in London and lost his money and land, came home here broken-hearted and is supposed to have destroyed himself in this house, the only remnant of property that was left to him out of a fine estate? Supposed to have destroyed himself, cried Skegg. Why, the fact is as well known as the death of Queen Elizabeth or the Great Fire of London. Why wasn't he buried at the crossroads between here and Holcroft? An idle tradition, for which you could produce no substantial proof, retorted Mr. Bascom. I don't know about proof, but the country people believe it as firmly as they believe their gospel. If their faith in the gospel was a little stronger, they need not trouble themselves about Anthony Bascom. Well, grumbled Daniel as he began to clear the table. A girl of some kind we must get, but she'll have to be a foreigner, or a girl that's hard-driven for a place. When Daniel Skegg said a foreigner, he did not mean the native of some distant clime, but a girl who had not been born and bred at Holcroft. Daniel had been raised and reared in that insignificant hamlet, and, small and dull as it was, he considered the world beyond it only margin. Michael Bascom was too deep in the atomic theory to give a second thought to the necessities of an old servant. Mrs. Skegg was an individual with whom he rarely came in contact. She lived for the most part in a gloomy region at the north end of the house, where she ruled over the solitude of a kitchen that looked like a cathedral, and numerous offices of the sculler, larder, and pantry class, which she carried on a perpetual warfare with spiders and beetles, and wore her old life out in the labor of sweeping and scrubbing. She was a woman of severe aspect, dogmatic piety, and a bigger, bitter tongue. 
She was a good plain cook and ministered diligently to her master's wants. He was not an epicure, but liked his wife, his life to be smooth and easy, and the equilibrium of his mental power would have been disturbed by a bad dinner. He heard no more about the proposed addition to his household for a space of ten days, when Daniel Skegg startled him again amidst his studious repose by the abrupt announcement, I've got a girl. Oh, said Michael Bascom, have you? And he went on with his book. This time he was reading an essay on phosphorus and its functions in relation to the human brain. Yes, pursued Daniel in his usual grumbling tone. She was a waif and stray or I shouldn't have got her. If she'd been a native, she'd never have come to us. I hope she's respectable, said Michael. Respectable? That's the only fault she has, poor thing. She's too good for the place. She'll never be in service before, but she says she's willing to work. And I dare say my old woman will be able to break her in. Her father was a small tradesman at Yarmouth. He died a month ago and left this poor thing homeless. Mrs. Midge at Holcroft is her aunt, and she said to the girl, Come and stay with me till you get a place. And the girl's been staying with Mrs. Midge for the last three weeks, trying to hear of a place. When Mrs. Midge heard that my missus wanted a girl to help, she thought it would be a very good thing for her niece Maria. Luckily, Maria had heard nothing about this house, so the poor innocent dropped me a curtsy and said she'd be thankful to come, and would do her best to learn her duty. She'd had an easy time of it with her father, who had educated her above her station, like a fool as he was, growled Daniel. By your own account, I'm afraid you've made a bad bargain, said Michael. You don't want a young lady to clean kettles and pans. If she was a young duchess, my old woman would make her work, retorted Skegg decisively. And pray, where are you going to put this girl? asked Mr. Bascom, rather irritably. I can't have a strange young woman tramping up and down the passages outside my room. You know what a wretched sleeper I am, Skegg. A mouse behind the wainscot is enough to wake me. I thought of that, answered the butler, with his look of ineffable wisdom. I'm not going to put her on your floor. She's to sleep in the attics. Which room? The big one at the north end of the house. That's the only ceiling that doesn't let water. She might as well sleep in a shower bath as in any of the other attics. The room at the north end, repeated Mr. Bascom thoughtfully. Isn't that? Of course it is, snapped Skegg, but she doesn't know anything about it. Mr. Bascom went back to his books and forgot all about the orphan from Yarmouth. Until one morning, on entering his study, he was startled by the appearance of a strange girl, strange girl, in a neat black and white cotton gown, busy dusting the volumes which were stacked in blocks upon his spacious writing table, and doing it with such deft and careful hands that he had no inclination to be angry at this unwanted liberty. Old Mrs. Skeggs had religiously refrained from all such dusting, on the plea that she did not wish to interfere with the master's ways. One of the master's ways, therefore, had been to inhale a good deal of dust in the course of his studies. The girl was a slim little thing, with a pale and somewhat old-fashioned face, flaxen hair braided under a neat muslin cap, and a fairy fair complexion and light blue eyes. They were the lightest blue eyes Michael Bascom had ever seen, but there was a sweetness and gentleness in their expression, which atoned for their insipid color. I do hope you do not object to my dusting your book, sir, she said, dropping a curtsy. She spoke with a quaint precision, which struck Michael Bascom as a pretty thing in its way. No, I don't object to cleanliness, so long as my books and papers are not disturbed. If you take a volume off my desk, replace it in the spot that you took it from. That's all I ask. I will be very careful, sir. When did you come here? Only this morning, sir. The student seated himself at his desk, and the girl withdrew 
drifting out of the room as noiselessly as a flower blown across the threshold. Michael Bascom looked after her curiously. He had seen very little of youthful womanhood in his dry-as-dust career, and he wondered at this girl as at a creature of a species hitherto unknown to him. How fairly and delicately she was fashioned. What a translucent skin. What soft and pleasing accents issued from those rose-tinted lips. A pretty thing, assuredly, this kitchen wench. A pit that in all this busy world there could be no better work found for her than the scouring of pots and pans. Absorbed in his considerations about dry bones, Mr. Bascom thought no more of the pale-faced handmaiden. He saw her no more about his rooms. Whatever work she did there was done early in the morning, before the scholar's breakfast. She had been a week in the house when he met her one day in the hall. He was struck by the change in her appearance. The girlish lips had lost their rosebud hue. The pale blue eyes had a frightened look, and there were dark rings round them, as in one whose nights had been sleepless or troubled by evil dreams. Michael Bascom was so startled by an undefinable look in the girl's face that, reserved as he was by habit and nature, he expanded so far as to ask, ask her what ailed her. There is something amiss, I am sure, he said. What is it? Nothing, sir, she faltered, looking still more scared at his question. Indeed, it, it, it is nothing, or nothing worth troubling you about. Nonsense. Do you suppose, because I live among books, I have no sympathy with my fellow creatures? Tell me what is wrong with you, child. You've been grieving about your father you have lately lost, I suppose. No, sir, it is not that. I shall never leave off being sorry for that. It is a grief which will last me all my life. What, then? Is something else the matter? asked Michael impatiently. I see. You're not happy here. Hard work does not suit you? I thought as much. Oh, sir, please don't think that, cried the girl very earnestly. Indeed, I'm glad to work, glad to be in service. It is only... She faltered and broke down, the tears rolling so slowly from her sorrowful eyes, despite her effort to keep them back. Only what? cried Michael, growing angry. The girl is full of secrets and mysteries. What do you mean, wench? I, I know it is very foolish, sir, but I'm afraid of the room where I sleep. Afraid? Why? Shall I tell you the truth, sir? Will you promise not to be angry? I will not be angry if you will only speak plainly, but you provoke me by these hesitations and suppressions. And please, sir, do not tell Mrs. Skegg that I have told you. She would scold me, or perhaps even send me away. Mrs. Skegg shall not scold you. Go on, child. You may not know the room where I sleep, sir. It is a large room at one end of the house, looking toward the sea. I can see the dark line of water from the window, and I sometimes think, wonder sometimes to think that it is the same ocean I used to see when I was a child at Yarmouth. It was very lonely, sir, at the top of the house. Mr. and Mrs. Skegg sleep in a little room near the kitchen, you know, and I'm quite alone on the top floor. Skegg told me you had been educated in advance of your position in life, Maria. I should have thought the first effect of a good education would have been to make you superior to any foolish fancies about empty rooms. Oh, pray, sir, do not think it is my fault, any fault in my education. Father took such pains with me. He spared no expense in giving me as good an education as a tradesman's daughter need wish for. And he was a religious man, sir. He did not believe... Here she paused with a suppressed shudder. In the spirits of the dead appearing to the living, since the days of miracles, when the ghost of Samuel appeared to Saul. He never put any foolish ideas into my head, sir. I hadn't a thought of fear when I first lay down to rest in the big lonely room upstairs. Well, what then? But on the very first night, the girl said, went on breathlessly, 
I felt weighed down on my sleep as if there were some heavy burden laid upon my chest. It was not a bad dream, but it was a sense of trouble that followed me all through my sleep. And just at daybreak, it begins to be a little, uh, be light a little after six. I woke suddenly with the cold perspiration pouring down my face and knew that there was something dreadful in the room. What do you mean by something dreadful? Did you see anything? Not much, sir, but it froze the blood in my veins, and I knew it was this that had been following me and weighing upon me all through my sleep. In the corner, between the fireplace and the wardrobe, I saw a shadow, a dim, shapeless shadow. Produced by an angle of the wardrobe, I dare say. No, sir. I could see the shadow of the wardrobe, distinct and sharp, as if it had been painted on the wall. This shadow was in the corner, a strange, shapeless mass, or if it had any shape at all, it seemed. What? asked Michael eagerly. The shape of a dead body hanging against the wall. Michael Bascom grew strangely pale, yet he affected utter incredulity. Poor child, he said kindly. You have been fretting about your father until your nerves are in a weak state, and you are full of fancies. A shadow in the corner, indeed. Why, at daybreak, every corner is full of shadows. My old coat flung upon a chair will make you as good a ghost as you need care to see. Oh, sir, I have tried to think it is my fancy, but I have the same burden weighing me down every night, and I have seen the same shadow every morning. But when broad daylight comes, can you not see what stuff your shadow is made of? No, sir. The shadow goes before it is broad daylight. Of course, just like other shadows. Come, come, get these silly notions out of your head, or you will never do for a workaday a world. I could easily speak to Mrs. Skegg and make her give you another room, if I wanted to encourage you in your folly, but that would be about the worst thing I could do for you. Besides, she tells me that all the other rooms on that floor are damp, and no doubt, if she sifted you, shifted you into one of them, you would discover another shadow in another corner and get rheumatism into the bargain. No, my good girl, you must try to prove yourself the better for a superior education. I will do my best, sir, Maria answered meekly, dropping a curtsy. Maria went back to the kitchen sorely depressed. It was a dreary life she led at Wildheath Grange, dreary by day, awful by night, for the vague burden and the shapeless shadow, which seemed so slight a matter to the elderly scholar, were unspeakable terror to her. Nobody had told her that the house was haunted, as she walked about those echoing passages wrapped round with a cloud of fear. She had no pity from Daniel Skegg and his wife. Those two pious souls had made up their minds that the character of the house should be upheld, so far as Maria went. To her, as a foreigner, the grain should be maintained to be an immaculate dwelling, tainted by no sulfurous blast from the underworld. A willing, biddable girl had become a necessary element in the existence of Mrs. Skegg. That girl had been found, and that girl must be kept. Any fancies of a supernatural character must be put down with a high hand. "'Ghosts, indeed!' cried the amiable Skegg. "'Read your Bible, Maria, and don't talk no more about ghosts.' "'There are ghosts in the Bible,' said Maria, with a shiver at the recollection of certain awful passages in the scriptures she knew so well. "'Oh, but they was in their right place, and they wouldn't have been there,' retorted Mrs. Skegg. "'You ain't a-going to pick your holes in your Bible, I hope, Maria, at your time of life.' Maria sat down quietly in her corner at the fi kitchen fire and turned over the leaves of her dead father's Bible, till she came to the chapters that they too had loved best and oftenest read together. He had been a simple-minded, straightforward man, the Yarmouth cabinet-maker, a man full of aspirations after good, innately refined, instinctively religious. 
He and his motherless girl had spent their lives alone together, and the neat little home which Maria had soon so soon learnt to cherish and beatify, and they had loved each other with an almost romantic love. They had the same tastes, the same ideas. Very little had sufficed to make them happy, but inexorable death parted father and daughter, in one of those very sharp, sudden partings, which are like the shock of an earthquake, instantaneous ruin, desolation, and despair. Maria's fragile form had been bent before the tempest. She had lived through a trouble that might have crushed a stronger nature. Her deep religious convictions and her belief that this cruel parting would not be forever had sustained her. She faced life and its cares and duties with a gentle patience which was the noblest form of courage. Michael Bascom told himself that the servant girl's foolish fancy about the room had been given her was not a matter of serious consideration. Yet the idea dwelt in his mind unpleasantly and disturbed him at his labors. The exact sciences require the complete power of a man's brain, his utmost attention, and on this particular evening, Michael found that he was only giving his work a part of his attention. The girl's pale face, the girl's tremulous tones thrust themselves into the foreground of his thoughts. He closed his book with a fretful sigh, wheeled his large armchair round to the fire, and gave himself up to contemplation. To attempt study with so disturbed mind was useless. It was a dull gray evening, early in November. The student's reading lamp was lighted, but the shutters were not shut yet, nor the curtains drawn. He could see the leaden sky outside his windows, the fir tree tops tossing in the angry wind. He could hear the wintry blast whistling among the gables before it rushed off seaward with a savage howl that sounded like a war whoop. Michael Bascom shivered and drew nearer the fire. It's childish, foolish nonsense, he said to himself. Yet it's strange that she should have fancy about the shadow, for they say Anthony Bascom destroyed himself in that room. I remember hearing it when I was a boy, from an old servant whose mother was housekeeper at the great house in Anthony's time. I never heard how he died, poor fellow, whether he poisoned himself or shot himself or cut his throat, but I've been told that there was the room. Old Skegg has heard it, too. I could see by his manner when he told me the girl was to sleep there. He sat for a long time till the gray of evening outside his study, outside his study windows changed to the black of night and the war whoop of the wind died away to a low, complaining murmur. He sat looking into the fire and letting his thoughts wander back to the past and the traditions he had heard in his boyhood. That was a sad, foolish story of his great-uncle, Anthony Bascom, the pitiful story of a wasted fortune and a wasted life, a riotous college, collegiate career at Cambridge, a racing stable at Newmarket, an imprudent marriage, a dissipated life in London, a runaway life, a wife, an estate forfeited to moneylenders, and then the fatal end. Michael had often heard that dismal story, how, when Anthony Bascom's fair false wife had left him, when his credit was exhausted, and his friends had grown tired of him, all was gone except Wild Heath Grange. Anthony, the broken-down man of fashion, had come to that lonely house unexpectedly one night, and had ordered his bed to be got ready for him in the room where he used to sleep when he came to the place for wild duck shooting in his boyhood. His old blunderbuss was still hanging over the mantelpiece, where he had left it when he came into the property, and could afford to buy the newest thing in fouling pieces. He had not been to Wild Heath for fifteen years. Nav, for a good many of those years, he may have forgotten that drear old house belonged to him. 
The woman who had been housekeeper at Baskin Park till house and lands had passed in the hands of the moneylenders was at this time the sole occupant of Wild Heath. She cooked some supper for her master and made him as comfortable as she could in the long, untenanted dining room. But she was stressed, distressed to find, when she cleared the table after he had gone upstairs to bed, that he had eaten hardly anything. Next morning, she got his breakfast ready in the same room, which she managed to make brighter and cheerier than it had looked overnight. Brooms, dusting brushes, and a good fire did much to improve the aspect of things. But the morning wore on to noon, and the old housekeeper listened in vain for her master's footfall on the stairs. Noon waned to late afternoon. She had made no attempt to disturb him, thinking that he had worn himself out by a tedious journey on horseback, and that he was sleeping the sleep of exhaustion. But when the brief November day clouded with the first shadows of twilight, the old woman grew seriously alarmed, and went upstairs to her master's door, where she waited in vain for any reply to her repeated calls and knockings. The door was locked on the inside, and the housekeeper was not strong enough to break it open. She rushed downstairs again, full of fear, and ran bareheaded out into the lonely road. There was no habitation nearer than the turnpike on the old coach road from which this side road branched off to the sea. There was scanty hope of a chance passerby. The old woman ran along the road, hardly knowing whether she was going or what she was going to do, but with a vague idea that she must get somebody to help her. Chance favored her. A cart, laden with seaweed, came lumbering slowly along the level line of sands yonder, where the land melted into water. A heavy lumbering farm laborer walked beside the cart. For God's sake, come and burst open my master's door, she entreated, seizing the man by the arm. He's lying dead or in a fit, and I can't get to help him. All right, missus, answered the man, as if such an invitation were a matter of daily occurrence. Whoa, Dobbin, stand still, horse, and be donged to thee. Dobbin was glad enough to be brought to anchor on the patch of waste grass in front of the Grange garden. His master followed the housekeeper upstairs and shattered the old-fashioned box lock with one blow of his ponderous fist. The old woman's worst fear was realized. Anthony Bascom was dead. But the mode and manner of his death Michael had never been able to learn. The housekeeper's daughter, who told him the story, was an old woman when he was a boy. She had only shaken her head and looked unutterable things, yet when he questioned her too closely, uh, uh, sorry, she had only shaken her head and looked unutterable things when he questioned her too closely. She had never even admitted that the old squire had committed suicide, yet the tradition of his self-destruction was rooted in the minds of the natives of Holcroft and there was a settled belief that his ghost, at certain times and seasons, haunted Wild Heath Grange. Now, Michael Bascom was a stern materialist. For him, the universe, with all its inhabitants, was a great machine, governed by inexorable laws. To such a man, the idea of a ghost was simply absurd, as absurd as the assertion that two and two make five, or that a circle can be formed of a straight line. Yet he had a kind of dilettante, interest in the idea of a mind which could believe in ghosts. The subject offered an amusing psychological study. This poor little pale girl now had evidently got some supernatural terror into her head, which could only be conquered by rational treatment. I know what I ought to do, Michael Bascom said to himself suddenly. I'll occupy that room myself tonight and demonstrate to this foolish girl that her notion about the shadow is nothing more than a silly fancy, bred of timidity and low spirits. An ounce of proof is better than a pound of argument, 
If I can prove to her that I have spent a night in this room and seen no, no such shadow, she will understand what an idle thing superstition is. Daniel came in presently to shut the shutters. Tell your wife to make up my bed in the room where Maria has been sleeping, and to put her into one of the rooms on the first floor for tonight, Skeg, said Mr. Bascom. Sir? Mr. Bascom repeated his order. That silly wench has been complaining to you about her room, Skeg exclaimed indignantly. She doesn't deserve to be well-fed and cared for in a comfortable home. She ought to go to the workhouse. Don't be angry with the poor girl, Skeg. She has taken a foolish fancy into her head, and I want to show her how silly she is, said Mr. Bascom. And you want to sleep in his, uh, in that room yourself, said the butler. Precisely. Well, mused Skegg, if he does walk, which I don't believe, he was your own flesh and blood, and I don't suppose he'll do you any hurt. When Daniel Skegg went back to the kitchen, he railed mercilessly at poor Maria, who sat pale and silent in her corner by the hearth, darning old Mrs. Skegg's gray worsted stockings which were the roughest and harshest armor than any human foot, clothed itself withal. "'Was there ever such a whimsical fine lady, miss?' demanded Daniel. "'To come into a gentleman's house and drive him out of his own bedroom to sleep in an attic with her nonsenses and vagaries?' If this was the result of being educated above one station, Daniel declared that he was thankful he had never got so far in his schooling as to read words of two syllables without spelling. Education might be hanged for him, if it was all it led to. I'm very sorry, faltered Maria, white weeping silently over her work. Indeed, Mr. Skegg, I made no complaint. My master questioned me, and I told him the truth. That was all. All, exclaimed Mr. Skegg irately. All indeed. I should think it was enough. Poor Maria held her peace. Her mind, fluttered by Daniel's unkindness, had wandered away from that big, bleak kitchen to the lost home of the past the snug little parlor where she and her father had sat beside the cozy hearth on such a night as this. She with her smart workbox and her plain sewing. He with the newspaper he loved to read. The petted cat purring on the rug. The kettle singing on the bright brass trivet. The tea tray pleasantly suggestive of the most comfortable meal in the day. Oh, those happy nights. That dear companionship. Were they really gone forever, leaving nothing behind them but unkindness and servitude? Michael Bascom retired later than usual that night. He was in the habit of sitting at his books long after every other lamp but his own had been extinguished. The skeggs had subsided into silence and darkness in their drear ground-floor bedchamber. Tonight his studies were of a particularly interesting kind, and belonged to the order of recreative reading rather than of hard work. He was deep in the history of that mysterious place who had their dwelling a mysterious people who had their dwelling place in the Swiss lakes, and was much exercised by certain speculations and theories about them. The old eight-day clock on the stairs was striking two, as Michael slowly ascended, candle in hand, to the hitherto unknown region of the attics. At the top of the staircase, he found himself facing a narrow passage which led northwards, a passage that was in itself sufficient to strike terror to a superstitious mind. So black and uncanny did it look. Poor child, mused Mr. Bascom, thinking of Maria. This attic floor is rather dreary, and for a young mind prone to fancies. He had opened the door of the north room by this time, and stood looking about him. It was a large room, with a ceiling that sloped to one side, but was fairly lofty upon the other. An old-fashioned room, full of old-fashioned furniture. Big, 
ponderous, clumsy, associated with the day that was gone and people that were dead. A walnut wood wardrobe stared him in the face, a wardrobe with brass handles which gleamed out of the darkness like diabolical eyes. There was a tall four-post bedstead, which had been cut down on one side to accommodate the slope of the ceiling, and which had a misshapen and deformed aspect in consequence. There was an old mahogany, mahogany bureau that smelt of secrets. There were some heavy old chairs with rush bottoms, moldy with age and much worn. There was a corner washstand, with a big basin and a small jug, the odds and ends of past years. Carpet there was none, save a narrow strip beside the bed. It is a dismal room, mused Michael, with the same touch of pity for Maria's weakness which he had felt on the landing just now. To him it mattered nothing where he slept, but having let himself down to a lower level by his interest in the Swiss lake people, he was in a manner humanized by the lightness of his evening's readings, and was even inclined to, compa uh, to be compassionate uh, toward the weaknesses of a foolish girl. He went to bed, determined to sleep his soundest. The bed was comfortable, well supplied with blankets, rather luxurious than otherwise, and the scholar had that agreeable sense of fatigue which promises profound and restful slumber. He dropped off to sleep quickly, but woke with a start ten minutes afterwards. What was this consciousness of a burden of care that had awakened him, this sense of all-pervading trouble that weighed upon his spirits and oppressed his heart, this icy horror of some terrible crisis in life through which he must inevitably pass? To him, these feelings were as novel as they were painful. His life had flowed on with smooth and sluggish tide, unbroken by so much as a ripple of sorrow. Yet tonight, he felt all the pangs of an unavailing remorse, the agonizing memory of a life wasted, the stings of humiliation and grace, sh uh, disgrace, shame, ruin, a hideous death which he doomed himself to die by his own hand. These were the horrors that pressed him round and weighed him down as he lay in Anthony Bascom's room. Yes, even he, the man who could recognize nothing in nature or in nature's God better or higher than an irresponsible and invariable machine governed by mechanical laws, was fain to admit that he found himself face to face with a psychological mystery. This trouble, which came between him and sleep, was the trouble that had pursued Anthony Bascom on the last night of his life. So had the suicide felt as he lay in that lonely room, perhaps striving to rest his wearied brain with one last earthly sleep before he passed to the unknown intermediate land where all is darkness and slumber. And that troubled mind had haunted the room ever since. It was not the ghost of the man's body that returned to the spot where he had suffered and perished, but the ghost of his mind. His very self, no meaningless simulacrum of the clothes he wore and the figure that filled them. Michael Bascom was not the man to abandon his high ground of skeptical philosophy without a struggle. He tried his hardest to conquer this oppression that weighed upon mind and sense. Again and again he succeeded in composing himself to sleep, only to wake again and again to the same torturing thoughts, the same remorse, the same despair. So the night passed in unutterable weariness, for though he told himself that the trouble was not his trouble, that there was no reality in the burden, no reason for the remorse, these vivid fancies were as painful as realities, and took as strong a hold upon him. The first streak of light crept in through a window, crept in at the window, dim and cold and gray. Then came twilight, and he looked at the corner between the wardrobe and the door. 
Yes. Here was the shadow. Not the shadow of the wardrobe only, that was clear enough, but a vague and shapeless something which darkened the dull brown wall, so faint, so shadow, that he could form no conjecture as to its nature or the thing it represented. He determined to watch this shadow till broad daylight, but the weariness of the night had exhausted him, and before the first dimness of dawn had passed away, he had fallen fast asleep and was tasting the blessed balm of undisturbed slumber. When he woke, the winter sun was shining in at the lattice, and the room had lost its gloomy aspect. It looked old-fashioned, and gray and brown and shabby, but the depth of its gloom had fled with the shadows and the darkness of night. Mr. Bascom rose refreshed by a sound sleep which had lasted nearly three hours. He remembered the wretched feelings which had gone on before, gone before that renovating slumber, but he recalled his strange sensations only to despise them and he despised himself for having attached any importance to them. Indigestion, very likely, he told himself, or perhaps mere fancy, engendered of that foolish girl's story. The wisest of us is more under the dominion of imagination than he would care to confess. Well, Maria shall not sleep in this room any more. There is no particular reason why she should, and she shall not be made unhappy to please old Skag and his wife. When he had dressed himself in his usual leisurely way, Mr. Bascom walked up to the corner where he had seen or imagined the shadow and examined the spot carefully. At first sight, he could discover nothing of a mysterious character. There was no door in the papered wall, no trace of a door that had been there in the past. There was no trapdoor in the worm-eaten boards. There was no dark, ineradicable stain to hint at murder. There was not the faintest suggestion of a secret or a mystery. He looked up at the ceiling. That was sound enough, save for a dirty patch here and there where the rain had blistered it. Yes, there was something, an insignificant thing, yet with a suggestion of grimness which startled him. About a foot below the ceiling, he saw a large iron hook projecting from the wall, just above the spot where he had seen the shadow of a vaguely defined form. He mounted on a chair the better to examine this hook, and to understand, if he could, the purpose for which it had been put there. It was old and rusty. It must have been there for many years. Who could have placed it there? And why? It was not the kind of hook upon which one would hang a picture or one's garments. It was placed in an obscure corner. Had Anthony Bascom put it there on the night he died? Or did he find it there ready for a fatal use? If I were a superstitious man, thought Michael, I should be inclined to believe that Anthony Bascom hung himself from that old rusty hook. Sleep well, sir, answered Daniel as he waited upon his master at breakfast. Admirably, answered Michael, determined not to gratify the man's curiosity. He had always resented the idea that Wild Heath Grange was haunted. Oh, indeed, sir, you were so late that I fancied... Late, yes, I slept so well that I overshot my usual hour for waking. But by the way, Skeg, as that poor girl objects to the room, let her sleep somewhere else. It can't make any difference to us, and it may make some difference to her. Hmph, muttered Daniel in his grumpy way. You didn't see anything queer up there, did you? See anything? Of course not. Well, why, then, should she see things? It's all her silly fiddle-faddle. Never mind. Let her sleep in another room. There ain't another room on that top floor that's dry. Then let her sleep on the floor below. She creeps about quietly enough, poor little timid thing. She won't disturb me. Daniel grunted, and his master understood the grunt to mean obedient assent. 
But here, Mr. Bascom was unhappily mistaken. The proverbial obstinacy of the pig family is as nothing compared with the obstinacy of a cross-grained old man, whose narrow mind has never been illuminated by education. Daniel was beginning to feel jealous of his master's compassionate interest in the orphan girl. She was a sort of gentle, clinging thing that might creep into an elderly bachelor's heart unawares and make herself a comfortable nest there. We shall have fine carrying-ons, me and my old woman will be nowhere, if I don't put my heel pretty strong upon this nonsense, Daniel muttered to himself as he carried the breakfast tray to the pantry. Maria met him in the passage. Well, Mr. Skegg, what did my master say? she asked breathlessly. Did he see anything strange in the room? No, girl, what should he see? He said you were a fool. Nothing disturbed him, and he slept there peacefully, faltered Maria. Never slept better in his life. Now, don't you begin to feel ashamed of yourself? Yes, she answered meekly. I am ashamed of being so full of fancies. I will go back to my room tonight, Mr. Skegg, if you like, and I will never complain of it again. I hope you won't, snapped Skegg. You've given us enough trouble already. Maria sighed and went, back, went about her work in saddest silence. The day wore slowly on, like all other days in that lifeless old house. The scholar sat in his study. Maria moved softly from room to room, sweeping and dusting the cheerless solitude. The midday sun faded into the gray of afternoon, and evening came down like a blight upon the dull old house. Throughout that day, Maria and her master never met. Anyone who had been so far interested in the girl as to observe her appearance would have seen that she was unusually pale, and that her eyes had a resolute look, as of one who was resolved to face a painful ordeal. She ate hardly anything all day. She was curiously silent. Skegg and his wife put both these symptoms to temper. She won't eat and she won't talk, said Daniel to the partner of his joys. That means sulkiness, and I never allowed sulkiness to master me when I was a young man, and you tried it on as a young woman, and I'm not to be conquered by sulkiness in my old age. Bedtime came, and Maria bade the skeggs a civil good night, and went up to her lonely garret without a murmur. The next morning came, and Mrs. Skegg looked in vain for her patient handmaiden, when she wanted Maria's services in preparing the breakfast. The wench sleeps sound enough this morning, said the old woman. Go and call her, Daniel. My poor legs can't stand them stairs. Your poor legs are getting uncommon useless, muttered Daniel testily as he went to do his wife's behest. He knocked at the door and called Maria. Once, twice, thrice, many times, but there was no reply. He tried the door and found it locked. He shook the door violently, cold with fear. Then he told himself that the girl had played him a trick. She had stolen away before daybreak and left the door locked to frighten him. But no, this could not be, for he could see the key in the lock when he knelt down and put his eye through the keyhole. The key prevented his seeing into the room. She's there, in there laughing in her sleeve at me, he told himself, but I'll soon be even with her. There was a heavy bar on the staircase, which was intended to secure the shutters of the window that lighted the stairs. It was a detached bar, and always stood in the corner near the window, which it was, but rarely employed to fasten. Daniel ran down to the landing and seized upon this massive iron bar, then ran back to the garret door. One blow from the heavy bar shattered the old lock, which was the same lock the carter had broken with his strong fist seventy years before. The door flew open, and Daniel went into the attic which he had chosen for the stranger's bedchamber. Maria was hanging from the hook in the wall. She had contrived to cover her face decently with her handkerchief. 
She had hanged herself deliberately about an hour before Daniel found her, in the early gray of morning. The doctor, who was summoned from Holcroft, was able to declare the time at which she had slain herself, but which was no, uh, but there was no one who could say what sudden access of terror had impelled to the desperate act, or under what slow torture of nervous apprehension her mind had given way. The coroner's jury returned the customary merciful verdict of temporary insanity. The girl's melancholy fate darkened the rest of Michael Bascom's life. He fled from Wildheath Grange as from an accursed spot, and from the skeggs as from the murderers of a harmless, innocent girl. He ended his days at Oxford, where he found the society of congenial minds and the books he loved. But the memory of Maria's sad face and sadder death was his abiding sorrow. Out of that deep shadow, his soul was never lifted. The end. I think out of uh, out of all the stories I've heard this year, I think that one might be my favorite. That was a really good one. I liked it. Long, but it was good. It was. I, I, I'm sitting there like, you know, I'm listening to it, and I'm getting so into it. And I look up at the time, I'm like, holy shit. Like, I mean, that's about 45 minutes. But mm-hmm. I'm happy with it. I, I it's, it's, a good sh- it's a good story. I mean, we always – I think every story we do uh, read, well, at least you, that you read on here, um, I think we've always hit it out of the park on our choices. I don't think there's been one, like, and eh, one yet. Uh-uh. No, that was a really good one. Good choices. Yeah, yeah, I think you picked all four this year. They've all been great. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I want to contribute to uh, Freaky Tales, even if it is just saying, hey, Joe, you're reading this one this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you freaking thinking about, Joe? Well, uh, I'm freaking thinking about, uh, I've been craving to play uh, a particular game I used to play back in uh, in college called Crackdown 2. Uh, I don't know if it's just being in the mood for zombies or what, but it's basically, it's a game for Xbox, uh, that you, you basically play like a few, like a Judge Dredd kind of character, like a futuristic Mm -hmm. cop military guy. And you're, uh, you're fighting zombies and trying to protect, uh, the people of the town from zombies. And, uh, it's a really fun, just, you know, you just punch stuff and upgrade your character. And, uh, it's a really delightful game. And I found it at, uh, at GameStop for like four dollars, so I'm really excited to play it. Nice, yeah. Nice. So, how about you? What are you freaking thinking about? Um, I don't know why, but I've been in kind of a, a basketball kick over the last few days. Mm. Um, I was just I was trying to find something to watch on Netflix because I was watching uh, I was watching the TV series House on uh, Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, like, my third time watching it through, and I finished it up. I'm like, I need to watch something else. Like, I want, like what else can I get into? And I'm like, well, I don't want to get into another TV show just yet. Like, you know, I want to find something else. Mm-hmm. And I found this documentary on Netflix called The Malice in the Palace. It was uh, this big um, <clears throat> kind of riot thing between uh, the, uh, I want to say it was the Indiana Pacers and the fans uh, from uh, the Detroit Pistons uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, some basically there was this big brawl out in the fans that started because of a, a basketball player went into the, uh, the fans, uh, the, the seats, and started attacking the fans and shit. Oh, dang. Uh, it was the fans' fault. Some dude did throw a soda at him, and he had anger issues. So, um, That'd do so it. That, 
Yep. So I was watching that, and uh, I don't know why, but it got me more interested in like watching basketball shit. And I remembered I downloaded uh, NBA 2K17 like three or four years ago to play it, just because I needed something other than baseball to fucking play because I was getting bored of it. And I was like, you know what? I think I still have it because uh, it was on my PS4, and you could play PS4 games on PS5. So nice. I was able to re-download it. Uh, so while that was downloading, I started watching the Last Dance documentary about the Chicago Bulls uh, Final Six Championship in 1998. So nice. Uh, basketball. I've been I've been really into basketball uh, shit. Plus, I noticed that the Bulls are like five and one or some shit like that. Like so far this year. So um, who knows? Maybe this could be the year for Chicago sports. I know. Uh, the Bears haven't been doing too hot, and uh, even though they got that draft pick they've been waiting for, uh, but they know the Cubs are rebuilding. The Sox uh, didn't do that bad minute to the playoffs, so maybe it's time for the Bulls to kind of get back up into uh, you know the uh, spotlight, if you will. So mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. So just been enjoying that. I got watch. I got one more episode. It was like a ten part series of uh, the Last Dance. I got one more episode. I got watch uh, after that, and then I'm gonna jump back into my. Uh, NBA 2K17, maybe start from scratch, and uh, that was the best one. I tried, I think I tried playing 2K18 or 19 or something like that, and they changed the shooting like way, like the way of shooting the ball. I just oh, didn't weird. like it. So yeah, so I, 17, I think well, I'm going to stick around. You know, even though it's old, I'd prefer it. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, Joe. Yeah. As uh, we wrap up this freaky show, and uh, Freak Joe goes back into. Uh, Hibernation until we do our uh, cemetery tours. Uh, we're gonna bring uh, bring uh, Geek Cash Joe back over here. Uh, Cartoon Joe, I can't. Who is it? Cartoon Joe, yeah. Cartoon Joe. Cartoon we're bringing Cartoon Joe back over here. Geek Cash Joe can stay at uh, Geek Cash Live. We're bringing Cartoon Joe back over here uh, at this freaking show. But until he shows up next week, uh, where can our listeners find Cartoon Joe? If you need more Cartoon Joe, you can find him over at the Geekcast Live <laughs> podcast at violentpress.com. You can also find him on Facebook, iTunes, Google Play, and Twitter by searching Geekcast Live. Perfect. Guys, make sure you follow us on uh, social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter just by searching This Freaking Show. Search uh, This Freaking Show on all your podcast platforms, and I got like a 75% guarantee that will pop up there. If not, find a different one. We're everywhere iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, Verbal, uh, Amazon, all of them. We're there. Just for this freaking show. Uh, special thanks again to CarterComics.com and Audible for being sponsors of the show. We couldn't do it without you. And, um, guys, uh, that's going to about do it for, uh, this year's This Freaky Show. We do appreciate you listening to all our episodes and can, to be a continued listener of This Freaking Show as we move forward. As always, I am Travesty. And I'm the Freak Joe. And thank you for listening to another episode of this freaky show. I'm out.